0: Father, Lord, we do, uh, we do thank You, Lord, that we can gather together and learn more about Your Word. And Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that You have given us such great promises regarding the future, that death is no longer something that we have to fear and no longer does it have any sting. And so, Lord, we do praise You and give You honor and glory for these great, magnificent promises found in Your Word. We ask, Lord, that You would help us understand these things this evening, that You would help us dwell in Think deeply on your word, and that you would keep us from error. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to be conformed to the image of your Son through these studies. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, remember last time we were together in 2 Thessalonians 2, we talked about the apostasy. And I told you that this time we're going to be talking about the restrainer. And remember, the reason why this became such an issue in our local debate in the pre-wrath, pre-trib scheme of things is because there was the claim that in 2 Thessalonians 2, that passage, verses 1 through 8, proved, according to Alan Kirshner, that in fact the man of lawlessness was revealed at the midpoint of the tribulation. And so now what I showed you last time was that that is in fact not true. In order to find out when the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed it's tied into verse 8 of Second Thessalonians 2, which had to do with when the restrainer is taken out of the way. And so, of course, because the restrainer is tied to the timing of the revelation of the lawless one, you can see why it's important to figure out who the restrainer is. Well, to give you a heads up, at the end of the day, you, <laughs> this may frustrate some of you, we may not be able to be sure who the restrainer is. And in fact, I'll say I don't know for sure who the restrainer is, but we'll go through some of the options. But the reason why I'm laying this out, and I'll reiterate this at the end of the lecture, is we are going to have to determine the beginning of the day of the Lord by different means. Okay, But I have to lay that case out to you, why that is. So with that, let me get started on who or what the restrainer is. And I want to show you through church history some of the different options, and I'm only going to give you six of the most popular. The first one, and one that I'm actually going to try to argue and defend somewhat at the end, is the Roman Empire. Now, not that it's just the Roman Empire, but that it's human government associated with the Roman Empire. So in some sense, these two go together, the Roman Empire and human government in general. Number three, God himself. Number four, Paul's proclamation of the gospel. Five, the Holy Spirit. I'm going to show you some evidence for that position from a man named Reynolds Showers, and then I'll be showing you some objections to that. And then number six, Michael the Archangel. And Michael the Archangel has some good evidence for it as well. That's the position of the pre-wrath proponents, and I'll be discussing some of the the things that go along with Michael being the uh, restrainer as well. In fact, that's where I'm going to start out here, talking about the pre-wrath position. The pre-wrath position maintains that Michael the Archangel is the restrainer, they believe that he will be removed at the midpoint of the tribulation, so that Israel's enemies may have their way. And so, what you're going to see is that you see this uh, title here, the pre-rapture position. Michael stands still. That term stand still" comes from the Hebrew verb "amath." Okay, it's pronounced like if you had an "a" and then you you said the word "math," like mathematics. It's "amath." That's how you say it. And that verb. What I'm going to show you is that verb actually means not to stand still or to pass away or to stand aside, but rather to stand up or to arise to fight. Okay. So what the pre-rath position is going to say is this: a math, this Hebrew verb, actually means to be set aside or to stand aside, and that is going to occur in Daniel 12:1. Okay. So let me just show you Marv Rosenthal his book where he has this information. He says he who restrains until he is taken out of the way is the archangel Michael. And again, that's from page 256. Now let me just show you where this all comes from and where does Marv Rosenthal and Robert Van Kampen gather this information. Well, in Daniel 12.1, and before I read this passage, realize right at the beginning it says, now at that time, that ties Daniel 12.1 to Daniel 11.36 and to the rest of Daniel 11. Okay? Which talks more than likely, I would agree with the pre-wrath position on this, It ties Daniel 12.1 to the time of the Great Tribulation, the last three and a half years, okay? So that's where we are in Daniel 12.1. And listen to what Daniel writes. He says, now at that time, this is actually Gabriel, I believe, saying this. He says, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands over the sons of your people, will arise. And you see that term, will arise? I have that bolded. That is what's called the yittil form of a math, Okay? And that is the verb that, again, pre-wrath is saying, means to, instead of stand or arise here, it means to step aside or stand still or be silent, okay? So that's what the debate is going to focus in on. He continues, it says, "...and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who found written the book, will be rescued." So what, what is happening here then in the pre-wrath scheme, and I say scheme, I don't mean that. We have a scheme too, the, the pre-trib scheme. So it's not to sound, you know, sometimes when you're talking about an administration, if you call it a regime, it sounds bad. I don't mean to imply disrespect. It's just I call our own scheme a scheme, okay? So it's a scheme. Notice Michael stands still at the midpoint. That's what they're saying. And again, they're taking that from this verb, and they're saying it doesn't really mean will arise, but rather will stand still. Okay, that's what they're saying. Okay, now let me show you their case that Michael, in fact, stands still. Number one, there was a rabbi named Rabbi Rashi from 1040 A.D. to 1105 A.D. He was a medieval French rabbi who authored the first comprehensive commentary on the Talmud. And in that commentary, he understood that Michael was standing still. Okay, that was his interpretation of the verb amath. That's how he understood it. And... Certainly, this man knew Hebrew very well, and so we should take that into consideration. Number two, the Midrash Ruth Rabbah, dated probably around 100 A.D. is probably when it was written, expresses the belief that amath, again, the verb we're dealing with in Daniel 12.1, means that Michael will remain silent. Now, is everybody familiar with Midrash? Midrash is a form of interpretation or you might say exposition on the entire Pentateuch but also the law and the prophets. So it's the entire Tanakh. It's the Hebrew Bible, okay? And this would have been compiled between 100 B.C. and probably 100 A.D., right in there. Now, Rabbah, this means great. So this is the great interpretation of Ruth, if you will. And so within this Midrash, this interpretation, these scholars who put this together, they also believed that Michael went silent, Okay. Number three, one version of the Septuagint. Remember, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, probably done around 250 BC, okay, by the scholars in Alexandria, Egypt. Remember, the Jews are dispersed, and so not all of them even read Hebrew anymore. So they had the legend was that 70 scholars came together and they put together the Septuagint, okay? So that's the Greek translation. Well, just like we have many different versions of our Bible, that is, many different manuscripts, they have many different manuscripts, and one of their manuscript versions, has a verb paralusitai, and paralusitai literally means pass away, go by, and they have that for the Hebrew verb amath in Daniel 12.1. Does that make sense? So in other words, the septuagint in this one reading would seem to verify and validate that in fact amath should be read or understood as pass away. Okay, is everybody clear on that? Okay, number four. The Hebrew lexicon, this is by the way cited by um, that Marv Rosenthal, the Hebrew lexicon by Brown, Driver, and Briggs has standstill as a possible translation. In fact, it lists Daniel 12.1 as referring to standing up or arising. Now, looking at all these four things, it sounds like a very compelling case, does it not? But let me just show you how these four fall short and start to break apart. First of all, let me take them one one by one. First of all, number one, this Rabbi Rashi. Don't get me wrong. We should take anybody who understands Hebrew well, lived in that culture, and especially that far back, and we should weigh what they have to say seriously. However, realize that this is a man and his interpretation is fallible. In fact, if Rabbi Rashi was a really good scholar, he would have seen Jesus and would have believed in Jesus as his Messiah, right? So we know he's wrong about that, okay? So my point is, is no single man's interpretation is infallible. So what I'm going to show you is that his interpretation of Daniel 12.1 falls short. Okay. Number two, the Midrash Ruth Rabbah actually ends up being a powerful argument against pre rath Let me explain why. This Midrash dates back to 100 A.D. and in it is a discussion of a rabbi who admits that the original Masoretic text, that is the Hebrew text, the verb that was to be wrestled with and dealt with was in fact a math. Okay, now why is that important? Well, because some scholars think that paralusitai must have been a word that the Greeks used to translate from a different Hebrew verb, not a math, but a ver, which would mean to pass away. Okay, are you with me? So what's interesting is Midrash Ruth Rabbah actually gives us evidence that no the amath in the Hebrew Masoretic text was the original reading why is that important because when we get to Daniel 12 and Daniel 11 and the surrounding context all you and I have to argue about is what does amath mean in Daniel how does he use it are you with me and what i'm going to show you is that Daniel uses amath unequivocally to mean stand up and fight or to arise in power, okay? Unequivocally, that's how he uses it. Number three, notice I put on this evidence, one version of the Septuagint has paralucitai, sure enough, but there's other versions that have honestami. For instance, Theodosian's version of the Septuagint has honestami, and honestami would back up our understanding of a math, which means to stand a fight, Okay? So, are you, you, the, the point is, is we can't say, well, which version of the Septuagint should be preferred, the one that has paralusitai or anastami? Anastami would back up that Daniel, or uh, Michael, sorry, stands to fight. Paralusitai would validate a math means that he stands still or passes off the scene. Okay, so that's inconclusive. The Hebrew lexicon by Brown, Driver, and Briggs, it's interesting, yes, they have stand still as a possible translation, but in that same Lexicon, they end up listing Daniel 12.1 as referring to standing up and arising, not stepping aside or standing still. Why? Because that's how Daniel uses the verb a math. Okay, so even that very lexicon says, no, a math should be understood as standing to fight, not stepping aside or standing still or ceasing to restrain is the idea. Okay, so now let me show you how a math is used. And I'm going to show you that it's used actually 14 times total, I believe, in Daniel 11, I'm going to show you 11 of the occurrences. The other three that I won't show you happen in what's called the infinitive construct in a participle form. That's not important. But all 14, let me just say this unequivocally, have to do with a math indicating standing to fight or standing in power. Okay, that's how the verb is used. So let me show you. In Daniel 11, there's the verb a math is used in what's called the cal imperfect. The cal is the stem... The imperfect just simply means it's the form. It's typically the form that you would talk about something that would happen in the future. Although in Hebrew, they're not concerned so much with tense as they are whether an event is complete or incomplete. So in the imperfect, think of this idea. If you're playing football and you're actually down on the field and you're seeing the play as it's progressing, in other words, it's not finished, you're the running back, you're following your your lead blockers and so forth, well, That would be the imperfect. It's ongoing. It's ongoing action. The perfect tense, if you will, is the blimp view. The blimp, if you're looking down at the football field and all the players are on it, it seems to be completed. You've seen the whole thing. Okay? So I'm just showing you that the imperfect typically is loaded for the future tense, but it has to do with ongoing action. That's what it's about. But notice seven times it's used And in every single time, it means to arise, stand, or rise up. Not once does it mean to step aside. Okay, and in fact, Bob has my paper that I wrote on this issue, and it's on the scholarly CIC. And you can read, actually, I have all of the verses listed in that paper. And so you can actually go through these. But I'm just giving you the the summary. So seven times the math is used and indicates to stand, to fight. Daniel 11 also has the cal perfect. Okay, and that's used four times, and every single time it means to arise to power again. Not once does it mean to step aside. Now, what that means is out of the 11 times it's used in the imperfect and perfect, a math means to stand. It means to fight. It means to arise, arise to power. The only time that there, sometimes there's one passage in Daniel 11, it says that he refrained from resisting the king of the south, I think is how it's said. But what's interesting, the only reason it says that is because there's a preposition that means literally he stood from, okay? But it still means to stand. That's the whole point. There's a preposition, and that's the only reason it's modified. Are you with me? So there's not one single example of a math in Daniel 11 indicating that Michael is not standing to fight. So let's take that information then to our passage, Daniel 12.1, and notice... We have a Hebrew phrase, again, that means now at that time. And we're going to see that same, that same phrase used again and at that time. Okay, now I'm going to show you why that's important, but just note there's similarities in verse 1. So now at that time, Michael the great prince who stands, and by the way, that is a form of this Greek or this Hebrew verb a math. So it means that he stands over the sons of your people and he will arise here. Now, what you would have to believe if you were to believe the pre-wrath view is you would have to believe that Daniel, remember he used the uh, term of math and the Calum perfect and the perfect 11 times and every single time it meant to stand a fight or to rise in power. You would now have to believe that in Daniel 12, 1, Daniel changes the verb to have the opposite meaning. Are you with me? You would have to believe that. Okay. So now instead of will arise, you'd have to believe that he stepped aside or remained silent or something to that effect, that he stepped out of the way. Now listen, it keeps going. It says, And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time... Now what time is that? Well, it's the same time that's listed up here. It's during the Great Tribulation. And at that time, your people, everyone who was found, written the book, what? Will be rescued. Okay? Okay. Now, let me ask you, if what happens up here is at the time of the Great Tribulation and down here at that time is the same period of time and, in fact, the Israelites will be rescued, does it make more sense that the Israelites would be rescued by an angel who stands to fight or who flees from the scene? And my whole point is is that what I believe is that when we read the math, it says, "...will arise." that flows very nicely with the fact that these Israelites are rescued. Are you with me? Okay, in other words, if they all perished, that would make sense that Michael wasn't fighting for them, right? But no, they're rescued. That is those who are God's elect, all right? Now, let me give you some further information that will talk about this, and it's actually from Revelation chapter 12. But before I do that, notice this underlined portion in Daniel 12.1 on this next slide here where it says, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Jesus uses that very same phrase in Matthew 24, 21. Okay, let me read it to you. And he's talking about the great tribulation. In Matthew 24, 21, uh, Jesus says, For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. In fact, in Mark 13, if you compare the Septuagint of this passage in Daniel twelve one to Mark 13, there's actually similar almost identical words being used, okay? So certainly this has to do with the time of great tribulation. The reason why that's significant is notice the tie-in to Revelation chapter 12. And I'm going to show you Revelation chapter 12 is actually the divine interpretation of Daniel 12, okay? So if you want to understand what's going on in Daniel 12, read Revelation 12, 6 through 8, where John talks about Israel fleeing, and it says, then the woman, that's Israel, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, let me stop there. What is the 1,260 days? Well, that's synonymous with what's listed up here, and there will be a time of great distress. That's the Great Tribulation. It's the same period of time that Jesus is talking about in Matthew twenty four twenty one. right? Okay? Now, let me just make a quick point. Here we have another passage in the book of Revelation that talks about this time of... Of great distress, which we know to be the Great Tribulation, is lasting how long? 1,260 days, which is 42 months or three and a half years. Now remember, the pre wrath position maintains that in fact it has to be less than that. That is, the Great Tribulation has to be less than three and a half years. It has to be cut short. Well, in order for it to be cut short, if it's less than 1,260 days, we have to say then Revelation 12 is not accurate. Okay, are you with me? So to me, that's why I understand the cutting short. To mean that it was cut short to 1260 days or three and a half years. I think that's the best way to understand it. Well, John continues, it says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels, what were they doing? Waging war with the dragon. Well, when was that occurring? Well, during this 1260 days, the dragon and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough. Okay. Now, the, the point being here is that what we see in Revelation chapter 12 is that Michael and his angels are waging war. We never see him standing aside. We never see him if he is the restrainer, we never see him stepping aside and leaving Israel to their own devices to be slaughtered by the enemies of God. Okay? And in fact, there's a scholar who writes a commentary on Daniel's name is Stephen Miller in the New American Commentary. This is what he writes. He says, But Revelation 12, 7 through 9 appears to be the divine interpretation of this conflict. In that passage, Michael and his angelic forces engage Satan, the dragon, and his angels in war. This warfare between Michael and Satan takes place during the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation period. So again, now think of all the evidence that we've compiled so so far. Every time in Daniel 11 that a math was used, it meant stand to fight or arise to power, something to that effect. It never once meant to step aside or remain silent. Now, in order to maintain the pre-wrath position that Michael's the restrainer and that he steps aside or stops restraining at the midpoint of the tribulation, you would have to believe that Daniel completely took the verb and completely changed its meaning 180 degrees in Daniel 12.1. Okay? Very unlikely. What's more, you'd have to believe that Revelation chapter 12 where it talks about Michael fighting isn't really true. (laughs) or or, You'd have to say, well, at some point during that period he was actually not fighting. But all the evidence that we have, the only evidence we have is that he's fighting, okay? And so to me the evidence is very overwhelming that in fact during the Great Tribulation period Michael's not stepping aside his pre-wrath claims at the midpoint and in fact, Daniel 12:1, Revelation 12:7 through 9 indicates that Michael fights during this great tribulation period, which will last the full 1,260 days. Okay, now, what is Michael's function? What I'm not against, now remember, I don't think pre-wrath has made its case that Michael has or can quit and stop restraining or fighting on behalf of Israel, but that doesn't necessarily mean we have to disagree that he could be the restrainer. Okay, so now let me talk about Michael's function and show you that you could perhaps make a case that Michael has a restraining function. And let me show you some of the evidence. For instance, in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, Daniel, and by the way, this is Gabriel speaking to Daniel. He says, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia, remember, he was supposed to get to Daniel with this information, but he's withheld by this king of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. The kings of Persia here, what I'll I'll make the case is that these are the Stoikia or the host of heaven or the fallen angelic world, and they sit above the nations of the world. Okay? And so one of the things that you're going to see is that Michael is actually fighting with the host of heaven. And the reason why he's doing that is to protect Israel, okay? And in fact, we see the same thing in Daniel 10.20 where it says, Then he said, and again, this is Gabriel, said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these except who? Michael, your prince. Now notice Who is coming on the scene? Well, Persia, the prince of Persia, and then the prince of Greece is about to come. And interestingly enough, we see in both Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8, the kingdoms that come about in successive order were, of course, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, right? And then the Greeks, then the Romans, and then they are going to have this revived Roman Empire. So interestingly enough, as these fallen angelic beings, the host of heaven, come on the scene, they come on the scene, according to Gabriel, in the order that these kingdoms come about. In other words, it's Persia first and then it's Greece. And so who's going to fight? Well, Michael. But notice something very interesting. What is Michael called? It's Michael, your prince, indicating that he is the prince of Israel. Now, the reason why that's significant is I think that 2 Thessalonians 2, the restrainer, has a different object of restraint, namely the lawlessness that is infected or affected by the entire world Whereas Michael has a different object of restraint, namely the nations that are directly attacking Israel, okay, do you see the difference so i 'm going to show you is that I think is one objection against Michael being the restrainer that in fact Paul is talking about in second Thessalonians two Now, let me just talk though about this battle and the battle against the host of heaven. I think the battle is in some sense against the host of heaven in fact. There's an article on the the Twin City Fellowship website by Michael Heiser, and it has to do with this very issue in Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9, in the host of heaven. Let me read the passage to you. Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9, it's recorded this. Moses writes, he says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number, or the sons of God. Now, in the Masoretic text, again, that's the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. It would say literally sons of Israel. What this Michael Heiser does is, in his article is he lays out conclusively, I think, in good, very good evidence that the Septuagint's reading should be preferable and it should be interpreted the sons of God. Okay, now what's that a reference to? Well, it's a reference to these princes that Michael was fighting in Daniel 10. It's these angelic beings that are over the nations. It's the host of heaven. It's the stoichi, whatever you want to call them. They're the fallen angels that God has, in fact, placed over the nations. And listen to what Moses goes on to say. He says, for Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. And by the way, do you remember I talked about uh, synonymous parallelism last week? This is a great example of it. Notice it says the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. It's saying the same thing just differently. That would be synonymous parallelism. Okay, are you with me? So the point being is all the other nations, they had these different angelic beings, these fallen angels over them, but only one nation belonged to Yahweh, and that's Israel. So what God has done then is he sent Michael over the nation of Israel to protect them. And the point being is when we get to the Great Tribulation, we see that Michael is in fact fighting for them. Okay, We also see in Ephesians 6 that in in some sense, every Christian struggle is also with the host of heaven. Ultimately, where Paul writes, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Well, what's he referring to? I think he's referring to the same beings. Our battle is ultimately not with flesh and blood, but rather with the in heaven who want to dismantle our faith and want to devour us like Satan does, who prowls around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. And so ultimately, there is certainly a battle with the host of heaven. However, does that mean that Michael is actually the restrainer? Well, when we get to 2 Thessalonians 2, 6-7, through 7, remember I pointed out, and I won't read this whole passage, because I well, let me, let me read it this time because I don't think I've put it up yet this evening, Second Thessalonians 2, 6 through 7. Remember Paul wrote this. He says, And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. What's interesting is we have a neuter participle, but we also have a masculine one. So whoever the restrainer is, he's being referred to in both the neuter and the masculine. So the neuter participle is katakan, and the masculine one is katakon. The only difference is here's omicron. uh Omicron you say ah, and here's omega, you say oh, okay? But one is neuter and one is masculine. Now, why is that significant? Well, let me give you two objections to Michael being the restrainer. Number one, again, I've mentioned this earlier, the restrainer restrains lawlessness. Michael protects Israel. Okay, so again, the restrainer in 2 Thessalonians 2, his restraining object is lawlessness that has to do with this world apostasy. It's not, In other words, the restrainer's role isn't just to protect Israel. Okay, whereas Michael's role, it seems, in the book of Daniel is specifically just to protect Israel. The second objection is this. The restrainer is referred to by both neuter and masculine participles right here and here. And here we have them, you know, the neuter and masculine. However, archangel is only found in the masculine. Okay? So if Paul had intended to mention or to, if if his intent was that Michael was the restrainer, why in the world is he being referred to both in the neuter and in the masculine? It should have been just in the masculine. Okay? So right there to me, that's a very difficult lift to get beyond that. Okay? So let me just recap real briefly. Here's what we do know. Michael could not stop, or he is not stopping to restrain or fight on behalf of Israel during the Great Tribulation, even if he happened to be the restrainer. However, these two objections, I think, are difficult, and I don't think that he probably is the restrainer based on those two objections. Now, let me move on to the Holy Spirit. Could the Holy Spirit be the restrainer? And as I lay out this information, it comes from a man named Reynolds Showers. Reynolds Showers has written many books, and I came across his name one of the books that I'm reading is called Maranatha, Our Lord Comes. It's a definitive study on the studies of, um, or definitive study on the understanding of the rapture, I think is how he has entitled it. And I'm just going to be laying out some of the evidence that he actually gives for the Holy Spirit being the restrainer, and then I'll end up taking issue with some of it here. So let me first show you 2 Thessalonians 2.7, And I want to just uh, kind of uh, talk off of 2 Thessalonians 2 7. And what I'm going to show you here, 2 Thessalonians 2.7, Paul writes, he says, Remember, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. What I'm going to show you is that this Reynolds Showers tries to claim that the Holy Spirit is actually the he that is restraining this lawlessness. And remember, lawlessness we defined as anomia, which meant to reject or rebel against the established authorities, but it also has to do with sin against God. It's a general rebellion against the order of God. Okay. Well, what Reynolds Showers does is he uses Romans 8:2, and what he wants to do is make the case that this spirit is the one, in fact, that is the one that is the he here who, in fact, restrains this lawlessness. So, listen to Romans 8:2. He says, "For the law of the spirit." of life in christ jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death okay so again what he's trying to claim is that the law of the spirit here and I, I don't quite buy his argument but the spirit is somehow restraining lawlessness okay are you with me and in fact the law of sin that we were under in our old lives is in fact this lawlessness that the world is engaged and so what he's trying to do is make a link between romans 8 2 and 2 Thessalonians two seven. And before we poo-poo it too early, let me show you a quote from a guy named Douglas Moo. He's a scholar who wrote a commentary on the book of Romans, and he's commenting on Romans 8.2. Now let me show you what he says. It's very interesting. It actually gives Reynolds Showers, I think, a little bit of credence. Douglas Moo says this. He says, The immediate context, that is Romans 7.21-25, through 25, point rather to namas, that's the word for law, right here and here, It's meaning power or binding authority. Now, why would that be important? Well, again, that's somewhat what the restrainer is doing here. He's the binding authority over this lawlessness. Are you with me? So Douglas Moo is just showing us in context, maybe there is some sort of binding authority that this Holy Spirit has over humanity. And he goes on, he says, the actor in the situation is then the Spirit himself. It is God's Spirit coming to the believer with power and authority who brings liberation from the powers of the old age and from the condemnation that is the lot of all who are imprisoned by those powers? Okay, so somewhat of a compelling case. The, the only problem I have though is notice up here, those who are going to be partaking in this lawlessness are who? The whole world, exactly, and they're unbelievers. Whereas those who are partaking of the law of the spirit are who in Romans 8:2? Just believers. And so it seems to me a category error. Are you with me? It's apples and oranges. And so to me, I I don't buy the argument. Okay, so I'm still not sold, but let me give you some more evidence that he has. One neat thing a little bit is, notice again, the term for restrainer is both in the neuter and it's in the masculine. Well, we know that the term for spirit is neuter. It's pneuma, okay? And Reynolds Showers points out that in the New Testament that also refers to the Holy Spirit, with masculine and neuter terms in the same text. Okay? So what Reynold Chowers does then, and he cites, I think, two passages, John 14, 26 and John 15, 26. Let me show you John 15, 26. Now, let me read the passage and show you. I think I gotta help Reynold Chowers out on this one a little bit, but in John 15, 26, he says, When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Now, it's interesting, in Reynolds Schauer's book, he talks about the fact that this passage uses the masculine pronoun. However, there is no masculine pronoun here. This is actually attached to a verb, martureo, and in fact, it would be marturesé, which means it's a future form to testify. And so the, the, the point being is the he isn't really... In, in Greek, you have verbal nouns. The, the, the verbs are kind of like nouns. Okay, You'd have one verb, And it would be like luo. It means I destroy. But notice I have a pronoun I, and then there's destroy. So we have two words in English, but it's only one verb in Greek. Well, the same thing is uh, happening right here. He will testify is one verb. And so there's no pronoun here. So I think Showers has missed it a little bit. However, let me come to his rescue a little bit. Helper, Perikletos, is in fact masculine. Okay, so here we do have the Holy Spirit being referred to as the advocate or the counselor. He's the helper. That's in the masculine, and spirit is in the neuter. So here we do, in fact, have in one passage the Holy Spirit being referred to in both neuter and masculine terms. And then, in fact, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 and 7, that's what we have as well. Pretty slim pickings as far as evidence is concerned, in my opinion. But nonetheless, that's that may be one point. Now, another passage that he brings up, and the reason why he brings this up uh, in Zechariah eleven fifteen through sixteen is he wants to show you that God is the one who is responsible for bringing the man of lawlessness onto the scene. And this passage is actually all about the Antichrist. A very interesting passage. Let me read it to you: Zechariah eleven fifteen through sixteen. Zechariah writes, he says, "...the Lord said to me, take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish..." And by the, the term there, foolish, is eveli, and that literally means immoral one, one who uh, misunderstands the things of God and hates the things of God. It's the foolish one. A fool says in his heart there is no God. It's that kind of foolishness, okay? A rebel against God. So it's not merely foolish, but it's also... So in other words, it's not just the intellect, it's a moral, a moral problem, too if you know what I'm saying, okay? And so this is a foolish one. He's a foolish shepherd. Now, let me stop there. Remember, earlier on in Zechariah 11, 13, we have the good shepherd, that is Jesus being betrayed by, what, 30 pieces of silver. And so what's interesting is what the Lord seems to be saying here is there was the good shepherd, the Messiah. Israel wanted nothing to do with him. So because they wanted nothing to do with the good shepherd, he's going to give them this wicked shepherd. And I think a very powerful case can be made that this is, in fact, the Antichrist. In fact, every scholar I've talked or read has, in fact, agreed that this is probably a reference to the Antichrist. So it goes on. It says, For behold, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, seek the scattered, heal the broken, or sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. Do you see where I have it bolded here? That's something that no shepherd would want to do because a shepherd didn't earn his keep by eating the sheep. In fact, the sheep weren't being pastured and cared for in order to eat them or to get meat, but rather to get their wool. And so what this is the point is this bolded f- phrase here is proving that this has to be a very wicked shepherd because he's actually eating the sheep, which you would never want to do. In fact, he's so brutal to these sheep that he even tears off their hooves, which are good for nothing. That's just mean-spiritedness to his own sheep. Okay, so this is a very, very wicked shepherd indeed. And it goes on, it says, "'Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. His arm will be totally withered, and his right eye will be blind.'" Now, this last phrase is an idiomatic expression, which means the ending of this shepherd is going to be devastating, okay? Now, there's only one phrase that I really understand. In other words, what does it mean that his arm will be totally withered? Well, probably he won't be able to fight. He's going to be completely destroyed. That's the idea. But one thing that I learned about the right eye being taken out is, do you remember in 1 Samuel, I think it's 1 Samuel 11, you have the Ammonites that are going to go against Jabesh? And do you remember there's the leader of the Ammonites says that he is, in fact, going to take the right eye of anybody who fights against him. Why would they do that? Because if you took someone's right eye, then their depth perception is shot and they're no longer a good warrior and they can't do any damage to you. And so I don't know if that's what's implied here, but the point is this foolish shepherd is going to be completely obliterated. That will be his ending. That's what the idiomatic expression means. So again, the big point here though is that the Lord is the one who's going to raise up this shepherd. And so who's responsible ultimately for the Antichrist coming on the scene? If this passage is in fact about him, well, it's the Lord. The Lord is the one who is sovereign and therefore brings him onto the scene. Well, what showers goes on to show is that in john 5 43 jesus makes this sort of cryptic statement he says i have come in my father's name remember he's arguing with the pharisees and he says you did not receive me but if another comes in his own name you will receive him well who will they end up receiving will this foolish shepherd the point being that showers is trying to make is that the lord is responsible for raising up this false shepherd and therefore he reasons that perhaps the holy spirit is the restrainer in other words it's the spirit of god who either allows the foolish shepherd onto the scene or doesn't. Okay? And so that's another part of his case. Again, that doesn't prove that the Holy Spirit is the restrainer in my opinion. But now let me give you some objections to the Holy Spirit view. I have three of them. And the first one is, why is the Holy Spirit referred to in such an enigmatic way? Okay? In other words, it's very odd that Paul would refer to the Holy Spirit by using two participles. It, it's very odd. He never, he never refers to the Holy Spirit anywhere else like that. Okay? Now, the reason why that's important is I think it gives us evidence for a third view that I haven't gotten into, or a fourth view, and, and that is the view that it's human government. Okay? In other words, the reason why Paul may have spoken enigmatically, in other words, in an enigma, or kind of um, hiddenly about government being the restrainer, is because who was in power at the time, well, the Romans were. And if they got a hold of this letter and they thought they, they saw a discussion about the government passing away they think that Paul and these Christians are trying to usurp their authority. And so perhaps there was good reason, if Paul has in mind the restrainer being the government, there would be good reason for him to speak hiddenly or covertly about that. We'll, we'll mention that again, okay? But again, why is uh, the Holy Spirit being referred to in such hidden jargon? Uh, number two, how can the Holy Spirit be removed, yet there remain conversions and all the other things that the Holy Spirit uh, does? And we know there's going to be conversions during the great uh, tribulation period. So and the reason why I mention this is notice what the phrase says. It says, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Let me show you this Greek phrase. The Greek phrase that I want you to focus in on is right here. It literally says, from the middle, he is removed. Now the point being is, I think this Greek phrase, from the middle, or he is removed from the middle, it indicates that the whole restrainer is removed. It's not just a portion or an attribute or an attribute or one arm, or a piece of his work, but the whole restrainer is removed. In other words, you can't argue that, well, just the restraining function of the Holy Spirit is removed. It seems like the whole restrainer is gone. Well, if the whole restrainer is gone, and that happened to be the Holy Spirit, well, then how can he, in fact, regenerate people? Okay? You see what I'm saying? So, I don't know. Maybe there's a way around it. So, the point being is the phrase seems to indicate the entire person is removed, and that wouldn't seem to be something that the Holy Spirit would, would... that would happen to him. Okay, now the third objection is this. Remember Genesis 6.3? I'll show you that passage below this, but remember it seems to indicate that the Holy Spirit would no longer govern men. Remember Genesis 9.6 onward seems to indicate that human government is now the stopgap against lawlessness. Okay, you remember that? So remember we talked about this passage, Genesis six three where it said, Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not strive... And we said it's very possible that that term, strive, could be rendered govern. So let's read it again. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not govern with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Well, the point is, is this passage seems to indicate that God will no longer govern. Okay? Well, what's the apostasy about? Well, the apostasy is a rebellion against governance. And according to Genesis nine six. The governance shifts from God to man. If a man sheds a man's blood, so by man will his blood be shed, right? So the point being is the Holy Spirit seems to be out of the business of governance. It's man that's governing. Okay, are you with me? And so again, I think that that would be problematic to the view of the Holy Spirit. So what that leads me to is the final option, which is the human government view. This is actually a view held by Tertullian. Chrysostom and other early Christian interpreters. And again, just because there's early Christian interpreters that held to a view, that does not mean that that's a correct view. However, let's just weigh the evidence that they have. And I think Chrysostom makes actually an important point when he talks about, remember that participle, in he says this about that participle. He said, Some interpret this of the grace of the Spirit, but others of the Roman Empire. And this is my own preference. Why? Because if Paul had meant the Spirit, he would have said so plainly and not obscurely. Remember, that's what we were talking about earlier. Why does Paul speak about the Holy Spirit so enigmatically in such a riddle? And he says, But because he meant the Roman Empire, he naturally glanced at it, speaking covertly and darkly. And I think that that has some real merit there. That would be a very good reason to speak in such a, a riddle, because if the Romans had gotten a hold of this, they would have thought that the... Christians are trying to usurp the governing authority, okay? The government is seen, in fact, as the restrainer in Genesis 9, 6. Again, if a man sheds a man's blood, so by man shall his blood be shed. And, in fact, we see this instituted in Romans 13, 1 through 4. Listen to what Paul says about the governing authorities. He says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has authority, Opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. In other words, it can use it, right? For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So certainly there is a restraining function that government has. Now let me point out a couple of things here. Notice where it says it is a minister. This term minister is actually masculine. It's diaconus. It can be minister or servant, that sort of thing. What's interesting, the New American Standard chose to render it neuter. And if you read the different translations, they all struggle with whether to render the government as masculine or neuter. Okay, and I just thought that's kind of interesting. So here's a masculine noun actually being listed by the New American Standard as neuter, and it says it again. So anyway, yeah, right down here, it is a minister of God. So it seems like there's even some angst among the translators. How do we understand the terms related to government? Is it masculine or is it neuter? okay. Now, let me just talk about the first seal in Revelation. I'm going to talk about this as being some evidence for the governmental view because what's interesting in the first seal, we see that the world has basically united under this false messiah, this Christ, and there's going to be this one government that has peace for a short time. And what's happened is the normal restraining function of government where if one government gets out of control, many other governments will attack. That's all done away with, and the whole world unites under this charismatic leader who will in fact be indwelt by Satan himself. And so you'll have one government that is actually under the authority of Satan. Now, obviously, God is even in charge of him, right? He's sovereign all the time. But Satan will be giving him his power in a sense. So you'll have a government that is under Satan himself. Okay, and so let me read the passage. It says, I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow. Notice the bow has no arrows. And so this is going to be a peaceful conquering more than likely. And a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now it's interesting that this is peaceful because again, it shows you that the government has changed peacefully. God has taken a form of government that all you and I, all of us, every single human being relies upon. That is, if Iraq gets out of control, other nations will go attack. You will no longer have that really after Satan and his minions come to power in the form of the Antichrist. There will be warfare, but they're battling to try to uh, get back the governmental authority. Okay, so the governmental authority is gone. And in fact, Robert Thomas says this. He says worldwide peace is the condition at the end of the first seal period because one of the results of the second seal is to take that peace away. Okay, so at the second seal, you're going to see peace taken from the earth by the sword. Okay, and in fact, that's why, again, 1 Thessalonians 5.2 says the day of the Lord comes while they are saying what? Peace and safety. Well, you certainly can't be saying peace and safety after the second seal. Why? Because God says he's taken peace from the earth, okay? And that's why we should see the day of the Lord starting at the beginning of the 70th week, not later on, okay? And I'll be making that case next week. But Thomas goes on, he says, "...without arrows the bow is not a deadly weapon, as the sword under the second second seal is." So the sword is used in the second seal, indicating that their warfare, in fact, breaks out. Now, It's interesting, we see actually many passages in the Old Testament where if you're going to use a bow, arrows are what in fact inflict the damage. And let me give you an example here. Uh, Psalm 45.5, I think it's talking about actually the Lord. It says, Your arrows are sharp, the peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. The point is, When a bow is used, the arrows are what inflict the damage. And we see the same thing in Numbers 24.8, Zechariah 9.14. My whole point in showing you that is it seems to show us evidence that if, in fact, this was conquering due to warfare, you would see arrows involved. So the point is, is God has taken somehow the normal restraint of government, and he has, in fact, given it into the hands of the lawless one, I think, in the first seal here. Let me just show you how this neuter participle and the masculine participle line up with the human government view. In the first century, you had the Roman Empire and that would fit very nicely with a neuter participle and you had the Roman Emperor which would fit very nicely with a masculine participle. And really, in modern times, things don't change because in the future, we have the government generically can fit under the neuter participle and the ruler could fit very nicely under the masculine. In fact, that's exactly what F. F. Bruce points out in his word biblical commentary, when he says, one merit of the imperial interpretation is that it accounts at one and the same time for the diplomatic elusiveness of the language and for the alternation between the neuter and the masculine genders. Okay, that's what we have right here. It may be added that even after the Roman Empire passed away, the principle of the wording did not become obsolete, for when the secular power in any form continues to discharge its divinely ordained commission. It restrains evil and prevents anarchy. Okay, so his point being there that, you know what, we're really in the same condition. And in fact, it's interesting, a good case can be made that, the, the remember, you're going to have the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greeks, the Romans, then you're going to have the revived Roman Empire, right, in the last days. And where's the Antichrist going to come from? perhaps this revived roman empire and so in some sense you'd have the roman empire back and then the pseudo roman emperor but needless to say you still have the government and the ruler so this view is really timeless you're always going to have government and a governmental ruler and so that fits very nicely again with the neuter and masculine uh, participles now let me give you an, an objection to the governmental view number one And this is the only one that I I have, and maybe you guys can think of other ones that I'm blind to, but here's, I think, a good one. The restrainer seems to be restraining spiritual forces, not just earthly ones. This seems to beg for a spiritual restrainer. Okay, now let me give you an example here. For instance, in Revelation 9.11, remember you have these locusts who come out of the abyss and they sting men, and men want to die, but they don't? Well, listen to what's said about them. It says they have as king over them, the angel of the abyss, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in the Greek he has the name Apollyon and that's in fact, it means destroyer. So he is going to be the head in a sense or the king of these fallen angelic demonic beings who are going to come out and torment men. Okay? And showing that, well, why aren't they doing that now? Well, yeah, they're locked up. There must be some sort of restraint. Okay? So maybe that argues for an angelic restrainer. I don't know. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. Listen to the restraint that's put over Satan, a fallen angel, obviously. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So who's doing the restraining of Satan for the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year period? Well, an angel is apparently, at least that's his job, right? Now, let me just throw a little bit of mud back from the governmental side. It seems to, now remember, what we're trying to do is wrestle what, what did Paul mean when he talked about the restrainer in Second Thessalonians 2, verses 6 through 7. In fact, verses 3 through 7. Okay, what was he talking about? Well, remember in the context, the restrainer seemed to be dealing with an apostasy that was worldwide but not necessarily focused in the heavenlies but in the earthly realm. Are you with me? So the restraint was against an earthly apostasy. Okay, That would be my argument back, that perhaps, again, the intent of Paul is dealing with the restraint of the earthly realm, not with what's happening in the heavenly realm. Okay? That would be a comeback perhaps. At any rate, here's what I want to say at the very end. Who is the restrainer? I don't know. <laughs> Aren't you glad that you came all the way out here on a, on a Tuesday night for me to tell you I don't know? <laughs> and I'm sure that's probably very frustrating. However, let me give you some bullet points. There's a reason why I wanted to get into this with you this evening, and let me make some concluding remarks. First of all, no one knows who the restrainer is for sure. Gordon Fee, who wrote a commentary on Second Thessalonians, says, Let's just wait and to see. Because we really just don't know. We don't have enough evidence. It's interesting, those who Paul wrote to, they knew who he was talking about. They knew. We just don't know. We're not privy to the information that they had. Okay. Now, the one thing I can tell you is that if Michael is the restrainer, then he cannot be seen as stepping aside at the midpoint of the 70th week. That, I can tell you, I'm pretty sure about. Okay. Why? Because you'd have to say that all the times that a math is used again, 14 times total in Daniel 11, Daniel changes the meaning in Daniel 12.1 and has the completely opposite meaning that Michael doesn't stand to fight or rise to defend Israel, but rather steps aside. Okay? It seems very unlikely. And what's more, Revelation 12, if Stephen Miller is right, and I think he is, it's the divine interpretation of Daniel 12, we see that Michael is fighting on behalf of Israel and never do we see him stepping aside. Okay, so certainly we can conclude that Michael is not stepping aside during the 70th week. But is he the restrainer? I don't know. I kind of doubt it. I think some of the objections against it, especially the neuter and masculine participles rule it out, but I'm not sure. But number three, this is the big point that I want you to take away with and that we're going to be digging into. The determination of the beginning of the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is what we want to really figure out when we're getting into eschatology and the timing of it. It must be accomplished by another method. Remember, Alan Kirschner's claim in 2 Thessalonians 2 was that it proved the pre-wrath position. And it proved the pre-wrath position because he said that the restrainer, I'm sorry, the man of lawlessness was revealed when he set himself up in the temple in 2 Thessalonians 2 4. What I showed you was no. In fact, the man of lawlessness is not revealed when he sets himself in the temple in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, but rather he will be revealed when the restrainer is taken away in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Remember the timing indicator? Haos and kai tati, and then. And then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, right? 2 Thessalonians 2.8. So the point is, now, in order to determine when the day of the Lord will begin, we have to know who the restrainer is. Well, guess what? We don't know who the restrainer is, okay? So now what I'm showing you is this is not a good method just to look at 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 8 and saying, aha, this is exactly the timing of the rapture here and here and here. No, we can't know that, okay? So what I I think we have to do is use alternate means to try to figure out when the day of the Lord will be. And that is what I want to do with you next week. So next time we will be examining the day of the Lord. We're going to be looking at the broad versus the narrow usage, the beginning of the day of the Lord, the duration of the day of the Lord, and the cosmic disturbances. I just thought it was important that we looked and and I showed you what the issues are regarding the restrainer. So you can realize that if you're going to put all your eggs in the restrainer basket and say, I know for sure who the restrainer is and therefore I know exactly when the day of the Lord is coming, I, I have to disagree with you. I don't think we can know for sure who the restrainer is. I have my favorite. I think it's probably human government. That's my favorite. But there's, I think you can make objections against that as well. Okay? So with that, I'll take your comments, questions, show ideas, um, any fruit you have to throw. Yeah. Mike.
1: The restrainer, Michael as a restrainer is not exclusive to pre-wrath. I, I agree. Okay. Yep. And uh, the pre wrath position does not rest on nope. Michael being the restrainer in any way, shape, or form. I just want to make that clear. Sure. Okay. Um, my first question, I guess, is who is revealed first, Christ or the man of lawlessness? Is as, as far as as far as when? I would
0: say that the rapture happens first. That the parousia happens first. That the rapture happens at the beginning. Of the day of the Lord, I think that's the first thing that occurs.
1: so he's revealed at yeah,
0: that's right, that would the,
1: be the rapture
0: yeah, well, yeah, the, the Jesus yeah the parousia, we will see him as he is, yep, that's right but does the yeah, not necessarily the world, but I, I think it will be a visible bodily coming down, yeah
1: okay, so you see the uh, rapture then as uh, not visible to the world, a secret rapture.
0: No, I, I'm not saying that. I, I didn't. I, I don't say that it's a secret rapture at all. I think it'll be a, it'll be a very visible thing. He bodily returns for his church, and they'll be caught up to meet him in him. But he earth. won't be
1: able to be seen by the unregenerate.
0: No, I, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I, I don't know if they will or not. I don't know.
1: Okay. I wish uh, I
0: could be more helpful.
1: So, you don't see uh, any revealing of Christ to the fallen world at that time. Otherwise, as as, uh, are you saying that they see him and then they they still...
0: Uh... I, I would assume because it's a bodily return. I would assume they see him, but I, I'm, I'm not sure. I know that he bodily descends and that the church is caught up to meet him in the air, that I can affirm based on 1 Thessalonians 4:15 through 17. Now, how much the world sees, I don't know. Okay. Um,
1: yeah. I'm, I'm asking out of... Uh, out of uh, Luke 17, and it talks about the days of the Son of Man and sure. the Son of Man in His day. Now, is that the day of the Lord or is that something else? You know,
0: Mike, I, I don't know. I, I haven't, I haven't um, studied that passage, so I'd have to get back to you on that.
1: Okay, because it says there that the Son of Man in His day will be like lightning sure. from uh, one end of the sky to the other. Yeah. And so I would assume that the world would see Him at that time, and then he relates yep. that time to the rapture. And this this uh, imagery of lightning is also seen in Matthew 24, which you say is at the end of the 70th week, Yeah, right? that's right, yeah. So we're going to have two lightnings in the sky type of appearances.
0: Yeah, we very well could. And I'll show you, in fact, we're going to have multiple cosmic disturbances. I think that's very likely, yeah. And I'll, I'll be making my case to you. For instance, the cosmic disturbances. When we look at the cosmic disturbance in Joel 2, it talks about the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. When you follow Joel 2 to Joel 3, it says, in that time, I'll bring all the nations down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Well, when do the nations come down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat? Well, that's the Battle of Armageddon, well, right? Yeah, well, but, when does that happen? The, well, that happens but, at the end of the 70th week. And the reason why I would say that is, remember, Revelation 19 and Revelation 19... Christ, there's a sword that comes out of his mouth. And most scholars say that's identical to what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 11.4, where the stump or the root of Jesse will slay the enemies with the breath of his mouth, which is exactly what Paul is referring to in 2 Thessalonians two eight, that the man of lawlessness is destroyed.
1: But the imagery there so is, that would
0: seem to indicate that the end of the 70th
1: week. Yeah, but the imagery there is on a horse, not a cloud. So.
0: Well, I, so maybe his horses in the cloud I don't know but I mean the, the point being is now you have to me you have a timing indicator that these things are occurring at the end of the 70th week but remember you're having to have your one rapture which is time to Revelation 19 Matthew 24 Revelation 7 you have to have it and it'd be somewhere in the last three and a half years
1: well there is Not a, at the end there of the is a week. resurrection in that time of great tribulation of in week, fact right. it's in Daniel uh, 12 2 yep now, how does the? Uh... Well, hold on, Mike. Let me
0: just um, let me just stop there. Does to see if there's anybody else, and I'll I'll come back to you. Is that all right?
1: I have a question. Yeah. I have about another option for who the oh, restrainer okay. is. Sure. That the church could be the restrainer. That, is,
0: that is another option. Die. I should have had that in. The, yeah, that could is true. you address true. that? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they are really helpful, huh? Let's see. Let me just think about it for a minute. Well, first of all, I think we'd have trouble. Let's see, what is ecclesia? I think we'd have trouble with uh, the participles. We'd have to have a neuter and a masculine. I think um, ecclesia is, in fact, feminine, right? So we would have a problem there. I, I don't know of any good evidence for it. The, the, the one idea with the Holy Spirit is that when the church is taken out, the Holy Spirit goes with them. That's one of the thoughts. But... I'm sorry, I wish I could be more helpful. I just don't know how good evidence they have for that position. And it just seems to me it wouldn't line up with what Paul's referring to in saying in Thessalonians 2. And, and again, why would he refer to the church so enigmatically? You know what I mean? You think he'd just be very straightforward. And, and again, that's to me one of the most powerful arguments for it being the government. Because one reason why he may want to speak in a riddle. Is if he knew the Romans might get a hold of the mail, and that seems to me to make the most sense. So, yeah, that's a, it's a good question though. Yeah.
2: Tonight and in some of your other lectures, you've yeah. spent a little bit of time reinterpreting certain words. Tonight you ended up with a moth. Uh,
0: or Amath. other times
2: you've yep. d- done some others. Yeah. Do you get in any trouble with that? And as far as you know, why don't the why don't the Bibles that we use use a quote proper interpretation of these words? Far, I'm sorry,
0: like a, a math as far yeah. as... Um, if it uses a word stand. like
2: Michael is going to stand or, or whatever direction we're going to go with it, yeah. and you're saying, no, it's stand up, rise, fight, It's is all you're talking about is range of meaning, granted. Yeah, I am talking but about But the that, interpretation yeah. that we see when we read the text is not sounding like what you're saying. Yeah, what I'm
0: doing is I'm giving you the range of meaning. In fact, if you...
2: Okay, me, but, but I'm saying, yeah. why is this... I don't have a problem with it. I sure. know where you're going. But I'm just, for the people that are listening to this outside of this discussion, every time we're having one of these discussions, it's got to do with basically a reinterpretation of a word. Sure. That's a key word in a yeah. passage that we're using to prove something.
0: Yeah, well, for instance, when you get into these these verbs, there is a range of meaning. There's a semantic range. So what I'm showing you is that there is a debate about what this verb means. And so what I'm doing is I'm actually standing up for the the actual traditional rendering of the verb if you read all of the instances and I, I didn't think I had time I, what I initially did I'll just let you know when I put my PowerPoint together I went verse by verse by verse by verse and I thought well gosh we're going to be here till sunup, up okay so what I did is I, I, if I did that you would see how it's used okay and, and, and so context also determines how it's rendered because sometimes it means stand sometimes it means arise come onto the scene, that sort of idea. But you can see where the idea that he is stepping aside or being silent, it's, it's the idea that in when he stands or he arises, he's fighting. He's standing for Israel. If he's stepping aside, it's passive. He's not going to help him. And so that would be 180 degrees different. But the point is, is what I'm trying to do is just give you the range of meanings that you'll see through the different usages throughout Daniel 11. So if you go through Daniel 11 and you read that, you'll see it rendered different ways, and it depends upon the form because sometimes it's a yiqtol, sometimes it's a calcatal, sometimes it's an infinitive construct, and that changes the meaning slightly. Not, not the meaning, but the nuance and how you would say it. And so it's very difficult to say it means this precise thing every single time. Uh, we, we just can't do that with the, the language. So I, I hope that helps. But yeah, Bob's got some...
3: Well, another answer to your question. I know in a New American Standard, as I've been going through Luke for about four years, there are certain words that Luke is choosing that are linked to the Septuagint and they are linked to something later in Acts. Yeah. And I want that to be translated consistently because he has a reason for using the same word. Mm, yeah. okay? Now, if you can see that, then you can understand what the translation should be. But these translation teams that are doing... The, the taking this, these things and working on them, that's not necessarily their expertise. Yeah, They're language expert, but they may not be an expert on how Luke is uh, relating something to the Septuagint. Yeah. They may not see that. And so that's why in my sermons, if I think there's a theological reason for it, I'll go find another translation that gets it to what I think ought to be. Yeah. But it doesn't imply the New American Standard People are going outside of the range of meaning. They just didn't catch it.
0: Yeah. One example of that would be Odin, birth pangs. Yeah, Jesus refers to the beginning of birth pangs, Odin. 1 Thessalonians 5 talks about Odin, or birth pangs. And that same word is used in the Septuagint referring to birth pangs of the tr- the tribulation period or the Israel's distress and so forth. So that would be a word that a lot of these translators don't catch it because sometimes they'll translate it, a trial or some other thing rather than birth pangs. And so you kind of miss it. So you have to kind of be aware, like Bob is saying, when you're, you're dealing with a theologically loaded term, so to speak. So, yeah.
2: My friend sitting next to me, <laughs>
1: I'll
2: give her the credit. But ultimately is not the Messiah really the restrainer because all
1: things are under in his control regardless of
2: what the yeah. entity is.
1: Yeah,
0: at the end of the day, it's God, isn't he? And he does; He is the one who brings the... And that's it's actually a very important theological point. It's God who's sovereign over all these things. The, the, again, and so let me just be clear. That's a great point. God is sovereign over all these things, but he uses means. We've, we've talked about that a lot. And in Second Thessalonians 2, what we're actually wrestling with is what is the restrainer that God is using? So God is over the restrainer, obviously. And In fact, some people think it's God is the restrainer, but then it would be a very odd... Uh, an enigmatic way to refer to him as well. So, yeah, we're back to square one again. Are we out of time? Is there anybody else? Okay. All right. We're all done.